The following is a message by Pastor Mike Nye of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Our sermon text is Psalm 16. I'm going to read that. It's not a very long one. It is a psalm of David, we are told, in the um, inspired heading, not necessarily the heading that you might have over top of it. And it's a miktam, whatever that means. <laughs> not a lot of certainty around that. It's a liturgical, musical term of some kind. Um, so, but it is of David, and um, I'm going to read it for us here. Preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Bless us today as we think it out. He is risen. Hallelujah. In this time of the year, often called Eastertide, the days between resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and Pentecost, we've been contemplating how the resurrected Jesus casts out fear. And today we're going to learn from Psalm 16 that because Jesus was not abandoned, we need not have any fear that we will be abandoned. Now one of the dangers with a psalm is uh, its poetry, and we can quickly kill it through overanalyzing it. Right? A poem is intended to evoke emotion. Like a picture is intended to evoke emotion. And so sometimes, this is one of my challenges in preaching a psalm, when sometimes we begin to dig into it, we, we sort of lose the emotion that the author was intending. So one of the things I would say is, uh, once we've got some things kind of squared away here on, on the meaning of this and, and where, the, where David's going with it, I would encourage you through the rest of today and this week to just read this through with these things in mind and then just read and read and read. Not necessarily all, all at one sitting, but read it, come back to it later, read it again. Most of the time, if you, if you really enjoy poetry, you don't just read it once and go, yep, got that done. You read it again because there's something there. So that, that's a good way to approach the Psalms is some, some kind of pulling apart of it to understand and, and be clear about it, but then it's just the reading of it that, that gets into your soul, deepens and deepens. And, and I encourage also having, a, having someone else read it in your family if you can or a friend, because sometimes the inflection that they give it 
will open up some uh, other kinds of thinking for you or fresh ways of approaching the, the text. The beauty of this particular psalm is that um, we understand these last few verses, 8 through 10, we understand exactly what they mean because they're interpreted for us in the New Testament by Peter and Paul. So you might bookmark Acts uh, 2 and Acts 13 because we're going to be getting there eventually, and we're going to see that they uh, actually tell us what these verses really are about. But first, I want to get back to the beginning of the, of the psalm and understand what David is laying out for us here um, because it's always important when we're, when we're un- trying to understand the text of Scripture, we want to know what was the author intending in the, when he originally wrote it. In other words, most of these authors, uh, I doubt if any of them were, uh, except maybe John and Revelation, were, were writing these things down and thinking to themselves, 2,000 years, 3,000 years from now, I, I need to address something. They, I mean, they, frankly, they wouldn't have been able to, right? If you had written, if you had written a letter in 2019, it might have had very little impact in 2020, right? Because you couldn't foresee the things that were going to come. And so a lot of times what we have is they're writing towards things right then and there and before them, but those things, um, because God's story is one story that spans all time, carry into where we are today. And so we want to understand first what was David driving at and then see how drawing that into our experience we're able to make use of this text to draw closer to God and to live out the life that he's called us to. And so we begin with this first idea that God is our defender. David puts this out there in the first two verses, and he he kind of um, has a refrain of it in verse 9. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Then down in verse 9, he, he makes mention of the fact that, his, fact that his flesh dwells secure. So he's, he's putting out this idea, and he's going to kind of play this out over the next few verses, that God is his defender or his refuge. And uh, we want to think a little bit about what that would have meant for David. So in David's day, there were no rockets and bombs and, and, and cannons like that. They weren't, they weren't shooting in those kinds of ways. If you think about it, for us, in one sense, there's not really a secure place. If somebody intended to, they could drop a bomb on my house. I don't know why they would want to, but they could, right? I mean, you've seen how they can pinpoint where those rockets go. So I don't have, like, a secure place in that sense. I doubt if, a, uh, I doubt if even a bomb shelter would probably be of any use to me at this point in history. But here, in this day, what, what they're talking about is the city, and then often within the city, the tower. And you'll see that in the text of the Psalms a lot. Uh, the Lord is my tower, right? I run into my tower, and I don't fear. So the people would be living, they might live outside of the city, some of them. They certainly, a lot of them would work outside of the city doing their agrarian work. But the city was the place you would run to when the enemy came. The enemy came upon you, everybody gets into the city, closes the gate, and you're hopeful that, one, your walls are strong enough, two, you have enough food to outlast the people on the outside. Now remember, though, the people on the outside have to be fed as well, and you're not giving them the food. They've got to find it somewhere. And so that's why oftentimes you find these sieges go on for six or eight months, and then the army leaves because the, army, the, the people inside were smart enough storing up their 
their food and all that for potential battle. And so what, what David is after is, here's what's going on. Enemies are coming, and I'm going to run into the city because there I find refuge. There it's safe. That's the safest place I could be. Now, it may fall apart in the end, but it is the safest place that I can be. And for David, God is that refuge ultimately. David's not even going to trust in the city. He's not going to trust in horses and chariots. He's not going to trust in his mighty warriors. His trust is going to be in God. That is, he, God, is his refuge. And so as, as we look at that now, we, we want to think this is, this is um, why he trusts God, because God is his defender. Now we want to think about how this works out. How is it that David takes refuge? And I've, I've set it out in three Ds, primarily because it's reflective of my high school career. So three Ds. Delight, desire, and direction. Delight, desire, and direction. Verses 3 and 4, David delights. This is, this is how David takes refuge. He delights in God's people. Look at verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Now, it's saying something when you consider, you know, David is a capable man, and, and in fact, King, I'm not sure if this was written at that point when he was king or not, but here's a man leading a people, and yet he can say, I take my delight in these people. I take my delight in the godly ones. As opposed to, verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. I won't have anything to do with them. I delight in the saints of the land. God's people are his delight. And then the Lord is David's desire. Verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. For the, for the Israelite, the land was key. It was important. It was what they were promised, right? I'm, I'm going to promise land you're going to. I'm going to give you the land. And when, they were, when it was divided for them back in the time of Joshua, they were to keep that land within their family. And so they would pass it on down. And sometimes it would happen that they needed to sell the land, and God made provision for the land to come back. Two ways. One, um, kinsman redeemer. I can redeem the land from someone else it was sold to for my family or for my tribe. Or the year of Jubilee. I had to sell my land because I had a debt, at the year of Jubilee, all the land was supposed to go back to the person or the family that it belonged to. And so for the, for the Israelite, this was, a, this was a major factor. My land, that's my inheritance, my chosen portion. But look what David says. David doesn't say, well, that, that piece of property in Bethlehem that my, my dad just, that's my portion. Or he doesn't say, the kingdom and all that I have as king is my portion. Look what he says. The Lord is my chosen portion. If I get to choose an inheritance, it's going to be God. He is my chosen portion. And so the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. This is, this is like looking out. I, I go out on my back porch and I look around and I go, wow, this is a nice piece of property. God has given me a nice piece of property. I got wood, I got open, I got hill, I got valley, I've got a little creek at the back. 
Um, I mean, I just got, it's wow, it's wonderful. But then I need to stop and go, but all this doesn't compare to what I have in God. He's my chosen portion. All right, I'm getting ahead of myself, though. Um, The third one, David receives direction or counsel from the Lord. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. David receives direction from the Lord. He gets his counsel from the Lord. And one of the ways that he does this is he always places the Lord before him. He's, he's always got God in front of him. That's, his, that's what he's looking at. That's what he's looking toward. And that then enables him to do what is right. He's not looking off to here, over there, or somewhere else, but rather he's looking to the Lord. So that's, that's, that's this first part here where David's kind of laying this out. God is his defender, his refuge, and how he takes refuge is through uh, delighting in God's people, desiring the Lord, and receiving direction. So I want to bring that into our present. What, how, would that, how would that look for us? How does that look for us? What does that mean for us? Well, first, God is our defender. Let's just start with the kind of overall thought there. If you go to Isaiah 31, he tells us why we should take refuge in the Lord. Because that's, a, that's probably the first question we need to ask. Why should we take refuge in God? Well, he reveals through Isaiah why. Isaiah 31, 1 through 5. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers, against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, when a band of shepherds is called out against him, is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise, so the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. See, we don't run to anyone else to protect us and save us. Isaiah was writing to the kings who were being troubled by the Assyrians, and their temptation was to find another king to, to, to line up with them, especially the king of Egypt, previous superpower. Let's go see if the king of Egypt will bring his armies up with us, and together we will be stronger than the Assyrians. And Jeremiah is telling them, don't do that. In fact, in another place, it says the, that the Egyptians are going to be like a reed that will just break in two and drive right through your hand. Or the way it says here, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall. If you go get Egypt to come up and help you, both of you will be destroyed. Don't do it. Don't look elsewhere 
for your safety, but run to God because he, he stretches out his hand against the enemies and hovers over us, over us to protect us. Look at this, this picture in verse 4 and 5. The, the lion has got his prey and the shepherds come out banging their, uh, their staffs together and yelling and shouting. And you know what? The lion is not afraid. He's not terrified by it. He's not daunted by their noise. Or look at the next one. The birds hovering. I, uh, I found a uh, robin nest in a small pine tree that I have. I don't know why they built it right like at my eye level, but they did. It was really nice that they did because I could go and look at it. And I, could, I saw the three little eggs in there, and then I just went a couple days ago, and I saw one little bird in there uh, waiting for food. But what was interesting was when I went over the first time, I was kind of walking through, and I, I look, I'm like, oh, there's a nest there. I don't remember that, and I hadn't seen the bird. And when I took a step toward it, the robin, like, burst out. And then the two robins, the mom and dad, are like just hovering in the, in the tree around, the trees around, kind of hovering around and making a lot of noise and uh, trying to distract me. And I wasn't distracted because I was really more interested in the nest with the three little blue eggs. I had seen robins. I see them all the time on the front lawn. But they don't know that. So they're trying to distract me. But they're hovering. They're protecting their eggs. They don't just take off like, that's it, we're gone. They're going to do whatever they can to protect those eggs. It might cost them. It might cost them their life to do it, but they're going to do what they can. I remember one time um, we had those birds out here, I can't remember what they're called now, um, that nest on the ground, and they put their eggs in the rocks. Kildare. Yeah, killdeer, that was it, thank you. And um, yeah, one of them was out on the back, and I got too close to the, the nest, and the thing started limping away. You know, that's what they do. They, they act like they're, they're, they're hurt, and like you can catch them easily. Yeah, good luck with that one because I tried it. And, you know, they just keep getting away from you and getting away from you. So they're not really hurt. But that's, what, that's the picture here. God is hovering over his people and protecting them. He's not going to just take off. And that's why we can take refuge in him because that is the kind of God he is. Not like these other ones. The Egyptians are man. The horses are, they're just flesh. They're nothing. But God... He is the defender. He is the protector. Now, how do we take refuge in God? Well, <laughs> the first one is we make his people our delight. Let's look back at the Psalm uh, 16. Uh, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. In whom is all my delight? So there's the question. Are the, are the saints in this church your delight? Do you enjoy them? Well, I'm pretty sure most of us are like, yeah, some of them I really, really like. Other ones? Hmm. Now, I might be meddling here, but in light of verse five, uh, 4, ask yourself this question. Do I take more delight in my heathen pagan friends than my Christian siblings? Would I rather be with those who are godless than those who are godly, even though they sort of rub me the wrong way? Or they're not as godly as I would like them to be? Or they're more godly than I would like them to be? <laughs> we don't get away from it, do we? Now, it's not a light question, and I, and I don't ask it lightly. It's a little humorous, but the reality of it's got to sink in, and it does when we open up First John chapter 3 because 
John is very straightforward about what it means to live in the family and how we can know if we take delight in those who are our siblings. Verse 15 of chapter 3, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. If we don't delight in our siblings, there's something the matter. There's something wrong. Now, listen, God put us together. We didn't necessarily choose, did we? In fact, one of the problems that we end up with and why I think people leave churches is they're under the impression they chose that church. Like, yeah, it's a bunch of churches out here. I like this one. I'm going to go to this one. Rather than recognizing God has placed them in that church among those people who are their brothers and sisters for his purposes. And, and I fear too often we jump ship before we've done our work, before God has worked through us and in us what he intends for his church. So yeah, you know, occasionally my kids are like, they, they, they don't say it ever, but I get the impression that they're not sure they got in the right family. <laughs> they know they did, but sometimes they wonder. Usually it's revolving around me. <laughs> they didn't get to choose, did they? It's the family they got put in. We don't do things the way other families do. We don't have things other families have. God has placed us in this church together. We've got to learn to not just get along. We've got to learn to delight in one another, to really take joy in one another. And I tell you, one of the ways that that's happening for me is praying for people. When you begin to pray for people, even if you have to start off with imprecatory psalms, they eventually will get to you a point where you're praying for their true needs because God is placing them on your heart and burdening you. Pray for, pray for the people here. Pray for your siblings. Lift them up before God. You know, it's funny, but you think about it. If you didn't pray for your flesh siblings, people would look at you like, what's wrong with you? And yet, how often do we neglect to pray for the sibling in the seat next to us who may not be our flesh sibling, but certainly is our sibling in the blood of Jesus Christ. So delight, delight in the godly ones. Where you're doing that, great, keep doing it. I don't want this to come across as like a hammer. Uh, let's just keep loving, keep loving one another. But the, the key is this, is this, I can't say to myself, well, I've got to do this because I know I'm supposed to. I've got to say, Spirit of God, give me a heart that's large for all of the siblings in my family. And he will, he will begin to do that Trust me, he will. Next, we make God our desire. Here's one of the ways we go to God for refuge. We make him our desire. We, have, we lack for nothing when we have God. Now think about it. It's a tremendous temptation to think all kinds of other things will satisfy us, like the better job. If I just had that job, that would be like the job I would want. It's funny. I, um, I had like the top job I would ever want at the uh, international headquarters for CEF in Missouri. And I, I didn't get it, and that's how I ended up out here. God's great. 
like didn't give me the job I wanted, put me out here. And then, and this is before we came to Turkey Town, and then I got called out there to take the job I most wanted, like the job that would satisfy me. And isn't it interesting, two years into it, I'm like, no, this isn't, this isn't satisfying. And when God put before me the job that I had no reason to ever imagine I would have, and I grabbed hold of that, I began to find satisfaction. So a better job's not going to do it. A better house, if I just had a bigger house or a nicer looking house, or a better spouse, if, I just had, if, if, if my spouse was just different, they were just better some way. What, you know that. You know where we're at. Okay. If I had the bigger, a bigger TV, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to stop meddling. A bigger TV. I don't know how you can get a bigger TV. I, I came up on this plan when I was down at St. James because wood's expensive, right? We're having trouble with wood now. So I'm thinking like in new houses, just make one wall a TV because they're that big anyway. You don't have to even use any wood now. Put a wall in there. A bigger TV, a, a newer car that doesn't have as much rust on it or gets better mileage. You can fill in the blank. You know what it is in your life that tempts you to think, if I had that, I would actually probably be more satisfied or satisfied at all. And when we are tempted to be dissatisfied with our lot or our inheritance, we need to come back to the psalm and say, no, the Lord must be my chosen portion. Look at what, how Peter says this. Blessed be the God, this is First Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the inheritance that God is providing for us is greater than the stuff we have here. It's, it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. You can't say that about a better job, a better house, a better spouse, a bigger TV, a newer car. All those will pass. All those will pass. So if you're on the verge of trading in an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, remember what Jesus says. That stuff that we have here will be destroyed by moths and rust or stolen by thieves. It's not, it's not really worth it in the end. God must be our desire. And then we must receive God's direction, instruction in how we should live. And he instructs us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus made clear in his discourse with the disciples that's recorded in John that this is why the Spirit's coming. The Helper, the Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Do you trust the Holy Spirit to direct you? Are you in tune with the Spirit so that you know this is how I should be living? But even more, um, do you trust the Holy Spirit to direct your brothers and sisters in Christ? Sometimes that's the tougher question. I know I can trust the Spirit. I've got it handled over here. I'm, me and God are good. But that guy over there... I'm not so sure that he's really got it. I think maybe I need to help the Holy Spirit. Have you ever had that temptation in your mind? I know we wouldn't say it that way, but that's kind of what we're thinking. Like we really need to come in here because we're not quite sure God can handle him or her. But do you trust that the Spirit is at work directing, 
your brothers and sisters in Christ as well as you, and so you can move forward in that. Now, before we get to the remainder of this psalm, and really the key as to why all of this is possible, I just want us to think a little bit about how these fears might look or play out in our lives. Certainly, you've got probably some already in your mind, but I'm just going to throw a couple things out there. One of them is this. Oftentimes, I think we don't believe God will protect us because we think protection means nothing bad ever gets to me. That's how we think it. Nothing can get through this impenetrable shield that God has put around me. So I shouldn't get sick. I certainly shouldn't get a deathly sickness. I shouldn't have anyone die in my family young. Uh, I shouldn't have them die old. I shouldn't have these problems at my job. I shouldn't, ha- I shouldn't lose my job. I, none of this bad stuff should happen to me. Because God says he's defending me. He's protecting me. Isn't he hovering over me? And when we begin from that vantage point, that God's protection means nothing bad ever happens to us, then we're already in trouble. We can't, we're going to live in disbelief then because we, we know something bad's going to come into our life. We see it. We've experienced it. It's there all the time. So when it appears that God hasn't protected us because he got, we got hurt, it weakens our trust in his defense. I have a fear right now. We may be afraid. Uh, here's what, one of the things we may be afraid of. Our way of worshiping will be removed. We won't get to worship the way we did. We already kind of got that, didn't we? we don't, we're not worshiping the way we did. Is God still protecting us? Is he still keeping us? Or we fear that wicked leaders in government will persecute us. They'll take away from us rights and where we left them. Well, we're left with God. We still have God. So we need to start off with understanding God's defense of us and protection of us means he will never abandon us, but it doesn't mean that nothing will ever come into our lives that hurts us or troubles us. Delight. We're afraid to extend ourselves to our brothers and sisters in Christ. I think one of the key reasons for that is we fear being ridiculed by others for loving people that seem unlovable or hard to love, or that our reputation will be tarnished because we claim relationship to a saint who does not act perfect. I'll give you an example. I was, uh, there's a, a guy that was in our church, and he was, he was in and out of our church. Um, I wouldn't, he was not like the most outstanding Christian. Um, I think he was a true believer. But I, um, I, uh, I, I was up at Planet Fitness working out. I was going into the locker room to work out, and he was in the locker room. And as I was changing, he's talking to, he doesn't know I'm there, actually. He's talking to some guys over here. And, man, I just wish you wouldn't talk that way. <laughs> and then he turns around and sees me, and what is, lo and behold, what does he say? Hey, there's my pastor to, the, to these other guys, right? Like, okay. You know, and I, I'm just thinking in my mind, like, they're probably going, okay, what kind of church are you in? You know, what is this thing? Now, on the other hand, I, but I could, I could go into the same way, and he could be embarrassed. I mean, I'm glad at least he acknowledged me as his pastor. He could be like, I'm not telling anybody I go to his church. So my point is, though, it is, it is so easy 
to be worried about our own reputation related to who we might be with, what they might be like. You know, one of the sad things in ministry is when a minister uh, falls and everybody abandons him. Everybody who was with him before turns away as if he might tarnish their ministry. And I believe it. I believe that if people say, hey, weren't you connected with that guy? And you're like, yeah, I was. They're like, we don't want anything to do with you. I ran into that in ministry once. And it's hard. But it's not right. It's not right that I worry about my reputation by turning away from someone who needs me. And so we need to think about that and not let that be a fear that drives us away from delighting in others, even if they're not perfect or even up to the standards that we would like. And then, desire. We are afraid to invest in heavenly treasure because it's not tangible. We can't see it. You know, I know Jesus said, I go to repair a place for you, but I have no idea what it's going to look like. I don't know. And I, I don't necessarily want something like Greco-Roman. I don't know if that's what it's going to be. I don't know. But I don't know what that's going to look like. I do know what this looks like. I know what I have here. And so sometimes we are afraid because we're not sure that what, we have, what's, what God has for us really will be better than what we have for ourselves. We, we really can't imagine that it's going to be more joyful, that it's going to work out better. And so we tend not to put our investment in treasures in heaven. And the last one is we often... I, I, was, working, I was working this over with a guy this morning, actually, uh, by text... Um, I told him that I, I'm often afraid I might misunderstand the Holy Spirit's leading. And then the Holy Spirit led me. Because he said this, no, Mike, that's not it. You're just afraid of what might happen if you obey me. And that's very different. It's easy to play it off. I play it off like, ah, I'm just not sure if that's the Spirit or not, and I don't want to make the wrong decision here. And, um, and I'm like the guy that buries the talent because I'm afraid... I might not get out of it what the master expects out of it. And he had a poor ending. He had a bad ending. How is it, how is it that I don't necessarily connect with the Spirit? It's usually because I haven't spent time listening to the voice of the Spirit. I'm not reading. I'm not praying. I'm just off doing my own thing. And then when the Spirit is speaking, I'm just not sure. I don't have a confidence because my confidence is no longer in the Scripture. My confidence now has become in my own ability to discern, and my ability to discern is not very good apart from the Scripture. In fact, it's awful apart from the Scripture. And so that's sometimes why we feel afraid in that way. Now, David, in the second part of this psalm, it sets before us the reason that we should not be afraid, the reason our hearts should be glad, our whole being should rejoice, and that we can dwell securely. And here it is, God will never abandon us. Isn't that great? He won't take off. If we fall, he doesn't just disappear. He doesn't disassociate himself. I don't know him. No. He calls us back, but he doesn't abandon us. Now, how do I know that? How do I know it's true 
that God will never abandon me, especially thinking about this in terms of death. I don't know. Nobody from the dead's ever come back to me in person and said, hey, it's all real. Right? I know it because of what Paul and Peter tell us. So this is what I said. Paul and Peter, uh, they, they exegete this passage for us. It's beautiful. Look at chapter 2 of Acts. Paul is preaching the sermon at Pentecost, and he quotes from this text. And then he says this about it. So he quotes from the text in uh, verses 25 through 28. And then in 29, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. It's Peter's way of saying David's dead, and his body has corrupted. It's fallen apart. It's rotted. His tomb's still here. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter's exegetic of this passage in Psalm is, this is Jesus. Sort of like when Philip gets on the chariot and the guy goes, is he talking about himself, the prophet, or about somebody else? Is David talking about himself or about somebody else? And Peter says he's talking about Jesus because he knows that his throne has been promised someone to inherit it forever. And so looking ahead, he knows that, and so he speaks of the resurrected Christ. So, and then, um, that's not music, okay. Paul then says a similar thing in chapter 13. He's preaching as they uh, head out on their um, first missionary journey, he and Barnabas, in um, chapter 13 and verse, uh, where are we at, 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in, one gener in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But, with whom God, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So again, Paul's saying also, this is talking about Jesus now, well, how does that help us? Well, first of all, I'm not going to address the surety of the testimony of Peter and Paul because Pastor Ken did that ably in a recent sermon. So you can go online and find the sermon where he talks about the surety of the testimony of the risen Christ. I'm going to point us to this, though. Our assurance that we will not be abandoned is that Jesus was not abandoned. If God would not abandon Jesus and would resurrect him from the dead, we can have full confidence that he will do the same for us. Our confidence is then in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so you see now how the risen Lord Jesus Christ drives the fear out of our lives because we don't have to be afraid. God will never give up on us. God will never say, I'm done. The reason we not, need not fear for our defense or our delight or our desire or our direction is because Jesus is alive. Alive. 
And since God can save us, and this is the key, since God can save us from the ultimate fear and enemy, death, he is certainly able to defend us from everything else. Or as Jesus would say it, don't, don't be afraid of the one who can kill the body but can't touch the soul. Your fear ought to be the one who can destroy the body and place the soul in hell. The one who has power over the spirit. And we don't have to have fear. We don't have to have fear of death. And if we don't have to have fear of death, if we can look death in the face and say, I'm not afraid because I will live forever, then I can look anything else in the face and say, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. That, 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 that's not bravado. It's not me just conjuring up inside of myself some kind of courage. It's learning over time to trust God because Jesus is alive. I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't know. I'm going to do this just because it's really important to me. It hit me today. I was sitting out there next to Jim Weaver, who is not afraid of death. And um, I was watching my daughter, Ivy. It's going to probably embarrass her a little bit. But I was watching Ivy sing up here. And I was just amazed at the confidence with which she sang. Now everybody's going to watch you when you sing at the last song. <laughs> but but she, she's not afraid. I, because you need to know that Ivy used to be a fearful person. When she was a young, younger child, she was fearful of a lot of things. But she's learned to trust God. And God has given her courage. It's not bravado. It's not standing up there pretending you're not afraid, pretending that things aren't awful, pretending that something bad couldn't happen to you. It's standing in the face of that and saying, I'm not going to let those fears change my faith in God. I'm going to keep pressing on in confidence. So, let me say it again. Since God can save us from the ultimate fear and enemy, death, he is certainly able to defend us, give us delight, grant us desire, and direct us all the days of our life. Now, this fast, last verse, we can't skip past this. Oh, look at that. You make known to me the path of life. Who's the path of life? Jesus. Right? I am the way, the truth, the life, Jesus. If I know Jesus, then I can have confidence that in God's presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, so the resurrected Jesus says, trust me. And when I do that, then I have this fullness of confidence that there's a fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. I can trust in God. That should make us really, really happy. Amen. Father, it is not easy to trust you sometimes. We shouldn't pretend like it's no big deal, just do it. We shouldn't expect that of everybody else either. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes we are grasping, hopefully, to hold on tight to Jesus. And even then, it seems slippery, and we, we, we think perhaps he's let go. But your word, which is more sure, Peter tells us, than anything, 
teaches us. We can trust in you, for you are our refuge. You are the one who will protect us. So help us delight in your people. Give us the joy in being with your people, all your people, not just the ones who line up well with us in so many ways, but even those who sometimes rub us the wrong way. And who knows, perhaps they're right and we're not. Father, help us delight, and then help us desire you more than anything. Oh, the many things that are beckoning us, even right now in our seats, we cast them aside to lay hold of you. And then we can say, the lines have fallen in a great place for me. And then, Father, would, Jesus, uh, would the Holy Spirit reveal ongoing your, you and your word to us? And would we receive it? Would we receive the direction of the Spirit how to live our lives? That you might be honored and glorified. Thank you for the time that we've had together. Would you bless us as we sing now, give you the praise, and adore you for who you are and what you have done. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Mike Nye of Durkeetown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkee Town, please visit our website at www.durkeetown.org.